0: Comfort, take your claim to a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom on the other side
1: Don't you just love that intro music by Maddie Morris? Listen all the way to the end to hear the full song with Maddie's beautiful voice and lyrics that always make me feel moved and honored whenever I hear them. Hi, everybody, it's Miranda. I was hoping to release this episode last week, but it was the week of Thanksgiving, and as you can hear in my voice, I got sick. I finally caught COVID after two and a half years of being careful and getting all the vaccines. I met some friends at a local pub a couple of weeks ago, and COVID found me. So I'm still coughing, and I'm a bit run down, but I am on the mend. Today, you're going to hear the final episode in our three-part series all about child sexual abuse lawsuits. And while it may sound pretty specific, I actually think it's a pretty fascinating look inside the legal process for anyone who finds that stuff interesting. I learned a lot and I think the information that attorney and survivor Catherine Robb shared with us will be invaluable to those who are going through or supporting someone who's going through the process of suing a perpetrator. And as long as we're on the subject of lawsuits, I want to make a brief shout out to all of the Sandy Hook family members who recently prevailed in the lawsuit against Alex Jones. As long as we're talking about heroes in this episode, and we are, I just have to thank every one of the plaintiffs for their strength and courage and standing up to injustice, even while they are carrying such enormous pain. They raise their voices and power in the most tender and vulnerable way, and I will forever admire them. On another note... Katherine mentions early on in this episode that she has specific advice and tips for plaintiffs to feel strong as they prepare to be deposed or testify or take on any other potentially intimidating steps in the process. Um, We didn't end up getting to this advice during the interview, so I picked her brain after the fact, and I will list her wise and helpful suggestions separately at the end of the episode. If you want to find a way to say thank you to Catherine for her public service and making a difference in helping to prevent child abuse in general, I hope you will consider making a donation to the nonprofit organization she runs, which is Child U.S. Advocacy, because they can always use help and they really are making a dramatic impact around the country. I will put a link to the website in the show notes. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast to help with my operating costs, it would mean a lot to me. Just press that donate button on the Truth and Consequences website or use my Venmo or PayPal handle on the coaching page at secondwound.com. Now let's get started. The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information and content are for general informational purposes only and based on general law. Please consult an attorney and the specific laws in your state. Hello, and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacquiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. I am joined by my sometime co host and friend, Catherine Robb. Catherine is an attorney, writer, survivor, and the executive director of Child US Advocacy, which fights for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Miranda. Today, I wanted to get started diving into depositions and what their purpose is, what the experience is like, tips, things to know beforehand, because Depositions can be kind of the meat and potatoes of what you experience going through these types of lawsuits. So if we could start with you explaining to us what is a deposition and what what is the purpose of depositions?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, depositions are probably the number one discovery tool used, uh, mostly because they're the most effective. Mm -hmm. So witnesses or parties can be deposed, sometimes experts can be deposed, and it's basically you're under oath and sworn testimony, and uh, the other side gets to ask you a bunch of questions, and they can be very nitpicky types of questions and they can do it for, you know, quite a long period of time, unless the court limits the amount of time. Uh, Sometimes they're done under audiovisual means as well. You know, given COVID, we also have a lot that have been done remotely as well, although I think we're stepping away from that finally. Mm -hmm. But a very useful discovery tool for both plaintiffs and defendants, and they really have three Purposes, uh, fact finding is an enormous part of it. And then also um, for impeachment purposes later. And I also believe that they are used improperly at times to intimidate folks because they can be intimidating because you are giving testimony under oath and um, they can be really long and you're really under a microscope and there can be super, super personal questions. Especially in child sexual abuse cases. And they can go back years and years, and it, it can just be really, can be very challenging sometimes. So I do think that sometimes there is an element of the objective of intimidation as well, but primarily fact finding and then also used to impeach whoever the deponent is, whoever the witness or plaintiff is.
1: Okay. I have a couple of questions right off the bat. Um, okay. They can ask you questions that would not be permissible to ask in court, right? They have a a wider net that they're allowed to cast. Yeah, so I, I think that what you're referring to,
2: Miranda, is that really under most civil procedure rules, and certainly under the federal rules of civil procedure, discovery is limited to what is, and the language and the case law is something like reasonably calculated to lead to admissible evidence. I the see. important two words in that is to lead to admissible evidence. So it may not even be admissible, but if it could lead to admissible evidence, it's allowed in discovery. So to answer your question, yeah, in some ways it, it may not be used, um, but there also could be issues of uh Privilege, confidentiality, that type of thing as well.
1: And some people would even call that a fishing expedition because they can ask you things like your sexual history, have you go into detail, things like that, that I think in in court you would be more protected.
2: Yeah. And I just also think that, you know, look at
1: when a plaintiff sues for sexual assault
2: or sexual abuse, what's happening is you're putting your emotional condition in issue, and therefore it really opens up a wide area for attorneys to sort of go after you. So you're, you know, you're putting your sexual history in, into uh, discovery. You know, you're just putting it in issue and you're putting your emo- your entire emotional and psychological History, past, it's all coming into the discovery process because it is in many ways relevant. But I think what can happen, and this is what I mean when I'm talking about the intimidation part of this, that I have seen Used with some defense attorneys and I've heard from others how it's been used and it's really quite traumatic for survivors, uh, to go through this. Is it's just really to almost sometimes embarrass you. I was asked in my deposition super, super personal questions that were, you know, really hard and triggering. So it does feel like if you think this is bad, wait to trial. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it has a little bit of a, that feeling. Mm -hmm. But, again, it's also used to impeach the witness, you know, to say, well, you said this in your deposition, but you're saying this now at trial, right? You can't be trusted. The jury should question you. You're lying. You know, you're hysterical. You're emotional. You're making this up, that type of thing. So the impeachment part is a really big part of depositions as well.
1: And impeachment The meaning of it in this context is that they are casting doubt on you as a reliable source of information in the jury's eyes, potentially.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're essentially attacking your credibility as a witness. And there's a couple of ways that they can do this under the rules. And that is what's known as prior inconsistent statements can come in, even though sometimes they sound like hearsay. But if they're offered to show that it's not what you said before um, or there's some inconsistency, They can bring it in to impeach you, basically get the jury to kind of scratch their heads and say, hmm, I don't know if I should believe her or him, that type of thing. They can also use use bias to impeach a witness to say, well... You know, you're just saying this because you don't like him for another reason, right? Or if attorneys are taking depositions of witnesses or family members or college friends, there can be questions around bias. Well, isn't it true that you really love your daughter or isn't it true that she's one of your best friends? So they can also use bias as a form of impeachment, And then they can also, and this is another, I think, big one for survivors, is they can attack what's known as defects in your testimonial faculties, like your memory, your hearing, you know, sometimes your eyesight, which may not be as important for this, but so they can also go after that. And I do believe that that can be really challenging sometimes for survivors because we are traumatized. Um, mm-hmm. Our stress response when we were being sexually assaulted as children mm-hmm. was activated, and there's disassociation to protect us. Our stress response was doing a fantastic job of protecting mm-hmm. us. Great and point. But in that, it can be hard to remember some things. You know, you remember bits and pieces. Of course. Um, you know, you remember something at one point when you were assaulted and not at another point when you were assaulted. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be really hard for survivors as well, and really not a fair representation of, of your ability to remember in a way that is reliable in terms of the rules of court and in terms of having a strong case.
1: Sure. Plus, you were a child. Yeah. And that makes there, there's that memory, little piece yeah, that you yeah, were. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would imagine that the triggering nature of the process of being deposed might cause some witnesses to some plaintiffs to dissociate a bit, to just get mm-hmm. rattled and have trouble being as clear in their memory as they want to be.
2: Well, you know, and th- think about how discovery and mostly a deposition, Mm -hmm. how triggering that can be. And I I need to point out that oftentimes in the deposition, the perpetrator offender is present. So that can be it really, really hard for survivors. Yeah. And I have I have all sorts of ideas about how survivors can seek support during it and feel some level of comfort. Maybe we'll have
1: a chance to get to that. Yeah. Um, And so just tell us what your attorney will instruct you about questions, mm-hmm. objections, things like that.
2: Yeah. First and foremost is tell the truth. When survivors get to the point that they're being deposed, right, they are in the midst of this journey of exposing truth and exposing how they were harmed. And, you know, sometimes it's really scary once we open up to sort of want to clam up. I know the first time I, I shared my abuse, I shared it and then I kind of I stepped back because it was just too overwhelming and painful. So attorneys will tell you, share all of the truth, but it's not always that easy, right? They will certainly instruct you to be completely honest and and tell the truth, and go into as much detail as you can because it's important for the judge and a jury to see how profoundly this affected your life and damaged you, um, and caused you great suffering and pain. So, and they'll also instruct you. There's some questions that will be asked, and attorneys agree to this at the beginning of a deposition process. There'll be questions that there'll be an objection, so you'll hear objection, and your attorney will typically look at you and say, "But you can answer." So that can be confusing, Mm -hmm. you know, for survivors or for actually anyone who's being deposed, witness or or survivor. A good attorney will give you a lot of great instruction on that practice too. Hopefully, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think also just even the defense side, if they have some measure of decency, will say, "You know, do you need a break?" Because again, this is. This can be really hard, telling your story and and the facts of what happened to you as a kid under oath, sometimes with a video camera. And you have other people there, too. There's maybe two or three attorneys on the defense side. There could be two or th- three attorneys on your side. There could be the perpetrator, offender. And there's also, like, the court reporter. You know, there's a lot of other people there. So it feels like you're very, very exposed Um, But generally, your attorney will and certainly should share this, so you're not surprised
1: every time you hear the word objection, Mm -hmm. which you will hear a lot. Okay. And I would also advise people to remember that, like I said last week, there's so much power in the truth, Mm -hmm. and uh, try and center yourself in that power and remember that even Mm -hmm. under those intimidating circumstances. Um,
2: And I think also just, you know, to share with your listeners is that you are having an opportunity to share the voice of that little girl or boy, the voice that they lost as children. You know, being a comfort to that child inside during discovery, just thinking I'm answering this question. And by the way, attorneys should always say, take your time in answering the question. They'll also tell you, answer the question, but only the question. But, you know, I think coming at these questions as the voice of that child can be really helpful and give you strength during the process.
1: That's great. Great advice. Tell us about what one can expect from the defense team and what kind of strategies they'll use and Mm. abuse.
2: So we've seen this in the New York Child Victims Act, you know, over 10,000 cases were filed in that two-year window period. And, you know, what I'm hearing from other attorneys, other survivors in New York is that defense counsel, the number one tactic is one of delay. Mm -hmm. Um, delay, whether it's delays in discovery, delays in motion practice, the tactic will be wait, 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 delay, delay, delay. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I think we talked about that a little bit last week too. And what is legal abuse? Can you tell us about that and what kind of protections there are against it? Mm -hmm. Again,
2: I'm going to come back to discovery because usually I see abuses in discovery, although it can also happen in what's known as motion practice. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's related to the delay tactics that we mentioned earlier,
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that it's really about just papering the crap out of the other side, right? So it just, you you know, you just always, you have to wait for a court to hear the matter. You have to wait, you have to file a response. To the matter. To their emotions and things like that. Exactly. So just, you know, what we are seeing in the New York Child Victims Act is that the court is, is not backlogged because of the amount of cases, because, of course, there's... So I don't know how many people are in New York, but I know I think it's over 8 million just in the five boroughs, right? So it was the motion practice and the delay tactics in discovery that all the filings by defense. And I quite frankly think that it was a very intentional, tactical decision to say... You know what? We, here's our, our response to all these child victims cases. We are going to delay, 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 and delay. And quite frankly, that's how they make their money.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So to me, I see for defense counsel in these matters, it's really no different than what happened in some of the asbestos cases is that time is their revenue. And yeah. so the way they can really cultivate a lot of revenue is by delaying and filing a lot of motions and just delaying everything. Keep it and, going. Yeah, just keep the, keep the ball going because the longer the, the longer this is going, the more money they're going to make. And you know what that's like. You've been experiencing that. What does that feel like? Um, it feels like an abuse. feels like an abusive process almost. And it also feels unethical. And Mm -hmm. a little disgusting that they're just raking in all this money by all these delay tactics. Um,
1: I would think it would also give you a sense of a loss of control, which is exactly why you're in court, because your control was robbed as a child. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really
2: good point, Miranda. You know, you finally get to have your voice, file this complaint, point to your abuser, stand up, and they just keep throwing, you know, stop signs at you. And it can be really hard because, like you said, it's um children who are abused lost a lot of control and they were also silenced and the trauma limited the amount of control and power that they had. So yeah. this is just, a, you know, it's abuse of power. Mm-hmm. You know, child sexual abuse is abuse of power. Mm-hmm. These tactics in the court system are an abuse of power. So shame on them. Shame on them for having these delay tactics that really only hurt survivors more.
1: Yeah. You've told me that CVA cases, Child Victims Act cases in New York, which you helped to write and pass that law, they do give trial preference if you're going to go to trial to those cases over others in the courts, correct?
2: That is correct. Yeah, Within this statute is a trial preference provision. So all that means is your case, because it's a child victim's case, and this was a really great move by the New York state legislature to include this, is you pop to the top of the trial list. When you finally file and what's called a note of issue, but in New York, it's called a note of issue. It's really getting your trial date, right? And you pop to the top on the docket other than other trial preferences that got there before you. So okay. it really it's really an effort to move this case because the New York State Legislature knew that these victims had waited a lifetime for justice and accountability
1: and so it's a great part of the child victims act. That's really smart. Yeah. What are the chances you will go to trial? Do you know roughly? I know they're very low compared to settlement or dismissal. Uh, generally speaking,
2: for, for all folks, very, very few cases go to trial. I'm not sure of the exact number, at least in New York, but I mean, 90% plus are settled. It's a pretty high number. And then, then of course we have the poor survivors that are now stuck in bankruptcy. That's another uh, whole topic, yes. but they have an automatic stay on their cases. Which, so Boy uh, Scouts
1: of America, a lot of Catholic Church cases. A lot of Catholic Church cases. and Declared bankruptcy. Yeah. And yeah. that also allows them to avoid discovery, right? There is discovery, but it's not
2: the same. Okay. Um, so we are fighting at the federal level to change Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We think it is not at all the intent of Congress when they passed Chapter 11 in uh, 1978, I believe. And it is just another way to re-victimize Those survivors and also offer a lot of these organizations a way out. I mean, this is just like Purdue Pharma and this and the Sackler family. It's such
1: injustice by taking the bankruptcy route. I'm so glad that you're pursuing that legislation. Is there anything you want to tell survivors who do make it to trial, that small percentage Mm -hmm. about the process?
2: It's a challenging process. A trial could be somewhere between four and 14 days, all depending on the amount of witnesses that are on the witness list. You're watching other people testify under oath. You're testifying under oath. Your abuser will be there, um, unless it's remote. That happens sometimes as well. Testimony is preserved. It's the war, you know. It's Mm -hmm. like, this is it. You're on the battlefield. And um, it can be a very daunting and scary process for anyone, but especially those plaintiffs that have suffered such trauma and loss of control and power to be in this battleground that can be very foreign. You know, I think we've talked about this in our prior episodes that we're talking about a very different process. It's like being on foreign land with a very foreign language. And you know, you're kind of in the middle of it. So it can be very challenging. I would always recommend survivors to have lots of support systems and to demand of their attorneys that they guide them and keep them on notice the entire way, because it can be really challenging.
1: Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. Tell us about mediation and court-ordered mediation versus private mediation and what that looks like. Yeah.
2: It's not always court-ordered. Sometimes they have mediation all depending on the jurisdiction within their court system to just help cases go through. And of course, these are state-run court systems, right? So there's not a payment to the mediator, whereas in private mediation, there is a payment to the mediator. If it's settled, that is. Um, Mediation is really presenting your case, talking openly about the pain that you went through as a child and the continuing cost of trauma that affects all parts of your life right up to this moment. So there's lots of sort of sit down with attorney, uh, excuse me, sit down with the judge or the mediator, whoever that mediator may be. Sometimes they're judges, sometimes they're other magistrates, or sometimes they're attorneys. And, you know, sitting down with your attorney with them, maybe sitting down with both sides, maybe just sitting down with the judge or mediator alone. So it's sort of a back and forth process of trying to come to some resolution And sometimes it can just be, like, emotionally cost-effective, but also financially cost-effective as well. And, you know, it's a whole lot easier than, for example, going to trial. And it's a whole lot less expensive as well. What other advantages are there to mediation? Um, Well, the first advantage is you'll be able to get to settlement more quickly, right? Okay. Um. So that that's a really big advantage. Uh, you are heard. Survivors almost always get to give a personal statement to the mediator. Mm-hmm. It can just resolve the case a whole lot faster with less really traumatizing types of confrontations that you'll have mm-hmm. in a trial, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. That makes um, sense. It's just a little bit smoother and more friendly. And, you know, you have some control as well. Your attorney does most of the work, but you know, mediation is a really good way to go. I 100% support mediation. A lot of survivors cannot emotionally withstand the trauma of a trial, and that needs to be discussed with your therapist, with your attorney. It may just be too much for you. And so you should consider and balance how challenging that might be to you. And also, just mediation is a really great way to get to resolution.
1: Yeah. And then you're sort of put out of your misery of all those other steps that are going to be difficult to go through, which is what you were saying. Exactly.
2: Direct examination, cross-examination, hearing other people testify, hearing an expert testify that says that, you know, you're crazy or you're over-emotional or your perpetrator didn't cause that damage, something else caused that damage. And discussing your sexual past and your relationships and all the little mistakes that humans make in a lifetime get blown up and thrown in your face. So you avoid that. And that's a good thing, I think.
1: And so most settlements that result in mediation will have some kind of non-disclosure agreement correct and how does a survivor balance that with their desire to have this out there Mm -hmm. you know what are your thoughts about that i
2: don't like ndas (laughs) you know what and ndas are the antithesis of what i want all survivors to have and Mm -hmm. that is a voice a lot of the pain that survivors go through is because they weren't seen they weren't heard you know, no one believed them. And I think NDAs just sort of reinforce that. And so, generally speaking, I really don't like them. Now, there are some survivors that want privacy, that need it for a whole host of reasons and whatever those personal reasons may be. And I do think survivors should have a right to allow this process and the ending to be according to their terms as much as possible, right? So for some people, they really want that privacy. I know some people that are in more public types of work may want it just so it doesn't hurt them in the future. But generally speaking, I don't like them. I think that they protect perpetrators and bad acting institutions. And I think they have the very likely potential of harming people in the future, because it's, to me, NDAs are a cover. Mm -hmm. Now, some NDAs are, you know, you can talk about this, but you can't talk about that, you know, and you can be very active in the restrictions within your NDA. Okay. So maybe you don't say what the settlement amount was. Maybe you can sort of have a more gray description of who the perpetrator was. So you still get your voice, but there's sort of a kind of meeting halfway. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they do vary. Generally speaking, I don't like them. I don't think they should be forced. And I think they should only be allowed if the survivor wants them. Okay. But generally speaking, I don't think they're good. I mean, I think they're fine in terms of not releasing the amount of whatever the settlement was mm-hmm. or the conditions of the settlement. Mm-hmm. But I think if a victim really wants their voice, they should be structured in a way that they maintain their voice.
1: And is that a realistic possibility with a settlement?
2: I think, you know, that is so fact dependent, Miranda. It Mm -hmm. really will depend on who we're talking about. You know, especially, I think, public figures usually want an NDA. Um, So it depends. I mean, we are working with Gretchen Carlson and folks in Congress on the speak out act which would basically hold that ndas are not enforceable in employment situations so it's yes. a, it's a little different yep. because we feel and Gretchen is a great voice on this we feel that ndas will in employment scenarios only put other victims at great danger potential you know other employees and folks at work in greater danger especially if we're talking about kids right you know, um, yeah, kids work, course. you know, kids work, you know, and if a kid is, you know, I don't know, being abused at some retail type of work, right? We don't want to silence that kid um, because other kids will be harmed. But mm-hmm. the same is true for adults as well. So we mm-hmm. generally don't like them, especially in employment scenarios.
1: Okay, I think it's also important to put it out there, getting back to settlements versus going to trial and potentially winning a jury award, that uh, it can be difficult to collect on a jury award. And Mm. the courts don't really have a system set up where they help you do that too much versus a settlement. You're pretty darn guaranteed to get your money. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um,
2: so, you know, if you, if you go to trial and you win, you win a judgment, jury comes back and says, yes, this person did this to you. They harmed you. Um, they caused you great emotional distress. They battered you, all of that. And then they have to come up with, well, what does that mean? Like, how do we value that? And that would be the judgment, excuse me, the uh, damages on the judgment. And sometimes it may be hard to enforce that judgment, meaning, basically satisfy the amount that the jury said the defendant has to pay the plaintiff. Now, there are ways to do this. There are attorneys that specialize in this, that is collecting judgments. So there is that risk, but I think generally speaking, it can be dangerous for both the defendant and the plaintiff. I don't think anyone wants a really big judgment hanging over their head. And then there are some attorneys that their entire work is to track someone down to enforce that judgment. But you do run that risk of it will be a little
1: bit more challenging to enforce the damages part of the judgment. Okay. And some defendants won't even have the money that right. the jury awards to the survivor, mm-hmm. right? Or yeah. they won't have all of the amount. All of the money. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Also some jury awards and settlement awards are taxable and some are not, correct?
2: Yes, the IRS is an interesting beast, to say the least, right? So essentially, the IRS held in a case quite some time ago that emotional distress damages were taxable income, whereas physical damages... We not taxable income, and this is really important, and let me just say this, this is probably the most important thing I should say. Every single survivor should always review any settlement agreement and their potential tax consequences with an experienced financial advisor or tax attorney. okay. I think most attorneys that are doing this type of work that is representing survivors know enough about the U.S. tax code to give that sort of advice. I just think overall, I think that that really makes sense, right? But now what's happened is, and this is the IRS and through cases, is that if the emotional abuse stems from the physical abuse, that is, so we have a battery in tort and we have intentional infliction of emotional distress. If the emotional distress comes from the battery that the IRS will view that as a non-taxable income right so Great. i mean I, th- I think mm-hmm. it's i think it's important to know that yeah. and the last thing you want to do is to go through this entire thing your whole life um battling standing up for yourself and realizing that you're getting screwed again because the IRS is going to take a certain amount of it. But so I think just understanding that to have a provision, maybe a tax clause or something like that, that you say something to the effect of these settlement amounts for compensation are for personal physical injuries, right? And any emotional distress.
1: Um, resulting from it. Yeah. Resulting therefrom or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you got to throw in some legal sounding yeah. words there. You got to throw in their phone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Otherwise, how are they going to make the big bucks, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Use
2: a different language and sound more important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what if you go to court and you lose? Mm. Yeah. That's a tough one, Miranda, you know, because there's always that risk that you lose for whatever reason. So, you know, legally, you can appeal, right? That, of course, is costly. Um, Well, even before you can ask the court to set aside that judgment, there are some parts, some uh, rules within the rules of civil procedure where you can ask the court to say, look, the jury's decision is not consistent with the evidence. And you can ask the court to essentially set aside that judgment and rule as a matter of, of law. Now, that is not always an easy thing to do. So there is there are some remedies at trial for that. You can also file what's called a motion for a new trial based on that the verdict is against the weight of the evidence. That's another remedy, or you could appeal it. So there are some remedies there. But I before we even get there, I think a good attorney is going to tell you this is going to be really hard to prove. And there is a big difference between the truth and what we can prove in evidence. And that's a tough one to swallow. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have sufficient proof, you may not be able to prove your case. So there's a real difference. And I think that your listeners should know that what the truth is may not be sufficient evidence to get a judgment at trial. And your attorney should know that before they get there. And they're going to give
1: you their professional assessment of how good it looks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because they're putting a lot of work and time into this too. And, you know, that's also generally how they get compensated, um, Mm -hmm. you know, on these contingency fees. And again, let's let's remember, over 90%, in some places it's as high as 97% of cases settle or do Mm -hmm. not go to trial. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. that is an unlikely scenario overall. And
1: as crushing as I'm sure it would feel, at least you got to tell your truth in a court of law and it's documented.
2: Yeah, that would be super, super hard. Right. Yeah. But crushing again. Yeah. Yeah. But again, to know that you spoke your truth is Mm -hmm. really important. You know, you stood up. These complaints are public documents. You pointed to the truth. You pointed to your perpetrator. You had the courage to do this. And that is saying something. That is, to me, why survivors are heroes in all of this. They're able to speak up, hire an attorney, and publicly make efforts to hold their abuser accountable. And to me,
1: those are the makings of a hero. I love that. What about countersuits from the defendant?
2: I mean, you don't typically see them in these cases, other than I know we already talked about this libel type of situations, but you don't typically see countersuits. You typically see motions to dismiss and a ton of discovery motions, but you don't, you just really don't see them unless it's this odd case where they're alleging. The abuse went both ways, mm, okay. right? So ca- they're called counterclaims, and counterclaims mm. typically compulsory counterclaims really arise out of the same transaction occurrence. That's the language under under the rule. But you know, you don't typically have them around up.
0: Okay,
2: you might have a separate suit which. I doubt would be compulsory, right? Because it's separate. It's one is using their voice. I'm thinking of slander, right? And we already talked about those.
1: Yeah, we did. We talked about that in episode one. Just to be clear, because I do get this question from survivors who find this concerning, you're not going to get sued for filing your claim. That is protected speech. Yes, yes. Anything Mm -hmm. you say outside of that You go to a reporter or even tell Mm -hmm. people in your vicinity that is potentially something they could try and hold you accountable for. Of course, the truth is a defense, but you Mm -hmm. may have to prove that you're telling the truth.
2: Right. You can't be sued for slander in filing legal documents with the court.
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're getting close to the end. I'm out Mm -hmm. of questions unless you have some last thoughts and some advice and maybe even specific tips that you want our Mm. listeners to know about.
2: Yeah. The legal process, I know I've said this before is can be daunting foreign land, new language, but you are standing up for that little kid. And that is super, super important. And will give you strength and has a whole lot of value emotionally and otherwise. And um, this is why we try to change the laws. We try to change them so victims can find their voice, can speak their truth, can have accountability. And, you know, victims want, they want accountability, and they also want this not to happen to another child. That's what I hear more than anything, Miranda. Miranda. Yeah, me is, too. I just don't want this person to do this to another child or I want this madness of child sexual abuse to end and the only way we can end it is to shine the light of truth on it. And the way we do that is through the legislative process and through the legal process. So any survivor who is engaged in the legislative process meaning speaking at committee hearings and using their voice there or filing suit. They're amazingly strong people that are rising from the ashes of such terrible sexual abuse and and making the world safer. That sounds a little corny, but survivors are making the world safer by speaking up either legislatively or legally. And it's one of my greatest honors is to work with survivors all over the country that do this.
1: I know that that's true, that you feel that so deeply, that that is one of your core principles. And you said that to me through the process. I say it right back to you. Mm -hmm. I think that people might not realize how truly profound the experience can be. You can't go back and change what happened, but you actually can, in a way, go back and take care of yourself in a way that you were powerless to do back then Mm -hmm. and that is big and you and I were behind all of you who are listening who are thinking about doing this who are speaking up or standing up for yourself in any way Mm -hmm. we are proud of you we admire you we feel you and we have your back
2: 100 percent yeah
1: Okay. And if you have other questions that weren't answered here and you want to email them to me, please feel free to send them to miranda at com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Catherine. This has been so instructive. And you were able to share really vital information with people and do it from the heart and with all the passion that you have behind the work mm-hmm. you do. So thank you so, so much. Yeah.
2: You know, I am lucky to have. I just want to add this. I'm I'm lucky to have the power, um, or the additional muscle of the law. That's really great and helpful for me, and I'm so happy to share this with others. But I also have another muscle that is not always clear to survivors, and that is our emotional strength to come forward. So I feel I feel privileged to share this information with survivors.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's a wrap. All right, girl. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the Truth and Consequences website to find all our episodes, photos, and show notes. That's truth, the letter and consequences.com. If you're interested in information and support about the aftermath of sexual abuse and assault, visit my website, secondwound.com, where you can also sign up for my blog, which often includes posts about my podcast guests. Please support the podcast with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and even easier, tell your friends and follow Truth and Consequences and The Second Wound on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on episodes and past guests. Thank you for all the support, everyone, and always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by Maddie Morris and produced by Pete Ord of Haystack Records. Thank you, Adam, for all the technical help and for bearing up under the strain of social distancing from me. You're a trooper. There is
0: comfort, take your claim, to a life without shame. There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom on the other side You have a right To the way you feel You have a right To a space Where you can heal Cause there is joy That will